few years ago, I took my uh, oldest daughter uh, to the park with me. There's a park over in uh, University Village that's got a gym and it. it's got pull-up bars and little things you can do at it. So I like, in good weather, I like to jog over to that park and, and work out of that park. And uh, I take my kids with me. Uh, and so I kind of do double duty. I'm on dad duty, but then I also knock a workout out at the same time. Well, one day I brought Ruthie with me, who uh, is my oldest. And at the time, I think she was probably four years old. And she comes over to this park with me. And as we're getting up to the park, I see that on the, you know, the pull-up set that they have there, there's this guy there. Okay. And this guy, he's got his shirt off. And he's about six foot eight, built like a gladiator. He could have been playing tight end for the Bears. And uh, I'm walking up with Ruthie, and, I see, and Ruthie's silent, and, and she looks up at me as we get closer, and she goes, Dad, I thought you said you were the strongest guy in the world. <laughs> I said, I am. <laughs> and she said, she said, he's stronger than you. I said, sweetie, no, he's not. <laughs> There are times in our life when we realize we've been fooled. There are times in our life when the truth of the matter is just right in front of us. You can't can't hide it anymore. There it is, it's right in front of you. There are times in your life where you've been believing a lie, sometimes because your dad told you, but there are times in your life where you've been believing a lie, then all of a sudden, truth is right in front of you, and you've got a choice. You can either play the game of believing the lie and living a lie, or you can face the facts deal with it head on. The Christian faith is such that we face a powerful enemy living our Christian life. We face an enemy who goes by the title deceiver. He's a liar, he's a sneak, and actually the name devil literally means divider. His, his work is to divide, to sow seeds of deception. He's a deceiver, he's a liar. And the devil's game is to take the truth and then see it and then convince you that it's not truth and convince you that a lie is the truth. He's the greatest marketer in the world. He markets death and sells it as life. Isn't that interesting? That's what he's been doing since the beginning. That's what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden and that's what he does with us as Christians. As Christians, we've been saved by Jesus Christ. We have the word of God, it's our our rock, it's our truth. We, we, We know truth because we have truth. This is everything to us. And then the devil comes along and he sows just this this subtle shift on the truth. That's what he's always done, right? Just this subtle shift that that just changes it enough, just waters it down enough, just turns it enough, and then he convinces us that it's true. And as Christians, we need to constantly be going back to the word of God and saying, am I being deceived? And when we realize we've been deceived, have the courage to lean into Jesus Christ and have him set the record straight so we see it for what it is. Have you ever had that moment in your life where you have recognized that something you thought was good was actually sin? Have you ever had that? As Christians, we should be having that. Those moments where you're you're, you're following this path and then you suddenly realize, I thought that was good, but actually it's bringing me death and it's kind of hurting everyone around me. Today I'm gonna be preaching on the, the, the theme of the foolishness of sin. Uh, In fact, the opening verse of the psalm today, Psalm 36, it reads this way. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The the original language, the Old Testament's mostly written in Hebrew. There's a few chapters in Daniel and elsewhere that are written in Aramaic, but it's mostly written in Hebrew. And Hebrew at times can be very difficult to translate. And that's one effort at the translation of that verse. But another effort at translating it would sound something like this. 
An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. And then he goes on and he he describes the life of the wicked and the foolishness of the wicked. And so this psalm, in a way, could be seen as an oracle concerning the wicked, a, a spoken truth to guard the church, to guard God's people against what's happening with the wicked and what's going on in their mind and in their hearts. And so the whole psalm is this oracle concerning the wicked. But it's fascinating how he goes about it. Let me, if you have the psalm in front of you, if, even if it's on your phone, if you scroll through it, it's not very long, 12 verses, let me give you an outline of what happens in here, okay? And you can kind of see how it's broken up in the paragraph breaks. Verses one to four shows this downward descent of the foolishness of sin. Then verses five and six contrast that sinfulness with the goodness and the attributes of God. So a few verses, just anchor yourself in the truth of God. Then he flows out of that to verses seven and nine, where if those attributes of God are true, then here's the blessings of the good life in Christ, right? So the attributes are true, the blessings of the good life, and then he finishes with this short few verses, verses 10 to 12, this prayer, may we never leave the blessed life, May we we never step back into verses one to four and be fooled by sin again. Here's my big idea. We are either fooled by the house of sin or we're feasting in the house of God. Two options. We're either fooled by the house of sin or feasting in the house of God. Let me read Psalm 36 to us. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, now we're moving into the attributes piece. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Now we move into the blessings the Christian experiences as a result of that. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast, hear that language? They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Now here's his prayer. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoer lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. All right, two parts to this. Part number one, we're either fooled in the house of sin or feasting in the house of God. Let's look at this first part, fooled by the house of sin. Verses one to four delineates this kind of downward spiral of sin. It, it, it keeps culminating into more and more sinfulness, but it starts off with this. There is no fear of God before his eyes, verse one. Before the spiral begins, that we're gonna go through in a moment, and all these verbs of here's what the wicked are doing, it starts with there's no fear of God in their hearts or in their eyes. Now, what's the fear of God? We throw that word around a little bit. Maybe it's overused in the church and we, we lose a sense of what it's supposed to mean. Fear of God has kind of two connotations to it. On the one hand, you have this idea that God is supremely authoritative and that there's a humble sense of respect and authority you ought to have for the position he has 
over the governance of the universe. It's a bit like if, you know, if you're, you're new in the city of Chicago, you get a job working for a Fortune 500 company and the CEO calls you into his, com- into his office. You know, when you go into to someone who has that seat of authority, you're gonna have a certain sense of, okay, I'm not gonna goof around in his presence, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play a game I might play in my cubicle with, you know, with, with somebody. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a respect for the office. Well, when you're talking about the king of the universe, you have a certain respect for the office he holds. But there's more to it than just that. It's not just a humble respect for authority. We also fear God. We recognize that, that he's the judge and that there's gonna come a day where we go from this life and the next thing we're gonna face is a judgment when we have account for our life. Jesus taught us this. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Sometimes I think actually uh, we, we have this kind of soft church thing we do where we try to spin the phrase the fear of God into something the biblical authors didn't intend. There is a healthy fear of God that we're to live with. And the fear of God is rooted in this idea that God is judge, we are not, he's got supreme control over us. And the beginning of this is this, this downward spiral of sin and it all starts with when you lose that fear of God, something's gone wrong in your heart. And and the moment you stop recognizing he's over this whole thing, then all other junk in your life starts to bubble up. That's where all sin comes from. That's where all brokenness comes from. And it works its way out in particular ways. Let's let's go through this downward spiral. Verse five, or sorry, not verse five. That's me reading my Bible with no glasses. Verse two. He flatters himself in his own eyes. That's the first step. He flatters himself. That's the beginning of the downward spiral. You you don't have a grounding of the fear of God. Well, what's the first thing? You're gonna start to flatter yourself. In a way, you're gonna start to think that you're God. How do we flatter ourselves? Let Let me give you some ways that modern people flatter themselves. They flatter themselves that their ways are good and right, that they are an overall good moral person of whom God would definitely not judge in any other way but positively. We flatter ourselves. There's no fear of God, and God, if there's fear of God, we look at the word of God, we know the truth about that, that line, but there's no fear of God, so we flatter ourselves. We flatter ourselves that by denying that God is just and that there is truly an eternal separation from God in hell for, the, for those who break his command. What is that? That's just flattering ourselves. We're thinking that we're better, we're thinking that God is truly not a judge, and we flatter ourselves. Number three, we flatter ourselves by claiming that our knowledge is superior to the biblical authors. You know that one, you've been in those conversations. You, I, this week I was evangelizing downtown and I was opening up uh, to a certain place with a, a young guy from England. He was there, had a great conversation. We got to a certain place in the Bible and he just said, well, I don't agree with that. <laughs> you think you know better than God? This is the final authority on all things. You're flattering yourself. You, you flatter yourself that you think you know better than God. We flatter ourselves by claiming that God's vision of society, God's vision of the family is repressive. This is the entire new cultural agenda, right? And frankly, if I can just be blunt, it's rooted in cultural Marxism. The idea that the the vision God has for the family is a repressive vision and needs to be broken down. (laughs) And we think we're gonna do better than what God's written? This This is not good. We're flattering ourselves. We flatter ourselves by appointing new prophets New public voices who champion postmodernism, right? The, the major prophets that have the voice are claiming what? There's no such thing as God's truth. There's my truth and your truth. That's a new cultural way of looking at things. My truth, your truth, there's not the truth. 
We're flattering ourselves. We're, we're, we're thinking we're, we're much more important than we actually are. God's spoken these things. When you have no fear of God, right? That's where it starts. No fear of God, you're going to start saying all that stuff. If you have a fear of God, then you look at his word, you say, okay, what does the truth say? Because I don't want to get this wrong. See how this can slip into your daily thinking very, very subtly without realizing it? Because it kind of sounds good. That's what the devil does. He, he, he sells darkness as light. He's a marketer. So you flatter yourself. Next one. They speak trouble. The words of his mouth, verse 3, are trouble and deceit. What comes next? Well, well, when you start flattering yourself, then, then slowly you start speaking. You, you find that, that that Bible verse that says what... Uh, what you speak comes out of, or, or what's in your heart comes out of your mouth, right? Your words are a reflection of the actual condition of your heart. If you're flattering yourself, eventually your mouth is gonna catch up with you. That's exactly what he says here. It's downward spiral. Now you're talking about it. And you know what happens when you get in circles and you start feeding yourself on lies is you really start amping the conversation up. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking of what would be a sin that we could trace this journey through? Think, think of somebody, who's, uh, somebody who has an affair, an affair in their marriage. This is how it starts, right? First, you flatter yourself. Okay, you think, I'm better than this marriage I've entered into. Then you, then you, then you, say, then you start speaking it, right? You, you, have, you have some buddies around you. You start saying these things to each other. This is, I've, I've walked through this with people before. This, this, is what, this is what happens. You start speaking it. The Bible nails this. Then what's the third thing? The, uh, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. Okay, now... Now, now, that's not a doing wrong. It's a stopping from doing good. Do you see that difference there? So he says you cease to act wisely and do good. So now you stepped back from doing the right thing. Well, that's how it plays out. It, you, you take that same person, and now, now they're in this life, and, and there's these guards that you had up, right? As a married man, there are guards I put up, right? There, there's, there's boundaries I have in my life. But slowly those, those boundaries would come down, right? If you start flattering yourself, now the boundaries come down. Proverbs chapter one, verse seven says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So now, now you're not acting according to wisdom. What's the next thing? They begin to plot trouble. See this downward spiral? So you're, you're flattering yourself, you're speaking it. Now you stop with the boundaries, the barriers you had. Then you, you plot trouble while you're on your bed. You're laying in, you're laying in bed at night, you're laying in bed in the morning and, and you're, you're dreaming of, of what you could do. It's this downward spiral. Then number five, you set yourself in a way that is not good. You position yourself for sin. You put yourself in sin's path. Okay? Then number six, he does not reject evil. Right? Then temptation comes. Then the moment comes. And, and, and you've already, you're so far removed from the fear of God at that point. That downward spiral is so far baked in that, that there's, there's, there's no ability to resist the temptation. Now, I picked on a fairly easy one, kind of like one of those big sins, like committing an affair, but, but this, is, this is how sin works. It's this toxic downward spiral of godlessness that works its way into your life, which is why, as Christians, we've gotta have a, a deep desire that wherever we spot any sniff of sin in our life, we root it out. I don't want it to linger because if it has this downward spiral effect, how foolish would I be to let it linger and manifest itself in all these different ways? Sin is foolish. 
Over the last few weeks, we've, we've had two full sins, two, two full sermons before today on the foolishness of sin. We, we, have, we have allowed the book of Psalms to take us deep into the heart of sin and what's going on. But we know this to be true, don't we? You, you don't have to be that long in the Christian life, or, or maybe some of you are like me. I, I didn't come to faith in Jesus until I was 18 years old. And, and, I, and I have some sins from that part of my life when I was a young teenager, and I look back, and I, I, what foolishness of sin was I in? What scars did I cause on myself and on other people and, 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 and hurt I put into other people's lives? And I'm so grateful that God protected me from so much more I could have been doing in that godless season of my life. But, but we know this, don't we? But we forget it because you get caught up in the moment. See, this is what we know. We know that sin is foolish and that it leads to more sin. And when you just let a little bit of it into your life, then it slowly, you begin to get numb to the fact that it's wrong. Just a little bit, right? Let's pick another easy one. I think of something like alcohol, okay? You slowly pick up a habit of alcohol and it's not a big deal, but, but then slowly it's manifesting itself more. It's manifesting itself more. You know this. And, and you've seen how it works, and you see how the devil just slowly works it deeper and deeper until suddenly you're numb to the sin. And when you grow numb to sin in your life, you are primed for death. All deadly decay. Sin promises it's going to be a joy, right? Pick on that same one alcohol. Well, why, why do people drink? Why, why do, because you, what does it promise you? You're going to be the life of the party. You're going to be funny. You're not funny, you're going to be funny, right? You're not good looking, you're going to be the best good looking person at the party. <laughs> at least you're going to think you are, right? That's what the promise is. You're gonna have a great night, but then you wake up and then you're living in the consequences of it. Not only physically, you got a hangover, but then you look back, what foolish mistakes did I make? All sin is like that. You depart from God's word, you think you're having the time of your life for a bit, and then you start to add up the cost of this, breaking from God's word, oh, and brokenness. We are seeing this all over society right now. The, 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 the effects of departing from God's word, working its way through school systems, working its way through families, working its way through individual lives. So now I'm speaking to the church on a Sunday morning, and here's what I want to say. Sin is foolish and will kill you. And if, if you see anywhere in your, your life where it's there, you need to nip it in the bud before it, before it spirals out of control. And you have tools at your disposal, confession, repentance, inviting the Holy Spirit to bring healing. But if you just become compliant with it, the, the, you're, you're giving the devil footing. You're, you're giving him ground to, to hold over you. It all begins with no fear of God. Okay, but I said, look, there's a good side. The, the negative to this is we're either fooled in the house of sin or we're, feast, we're feasting in the house of God. Okay? Sometimes I think that people have this, this wrong impression of God. And, and honestly, I, I think that sometimes Christians give off this vibe. And, and it's sad when I think Christians give off this vibe. I think a lot of folks in the outside world think of Christianity and think of the God of the Bible as the ultimate killjoy. He's just there to make you like boring, uh, just obedient, never doing like anything fun in your life people. And you just kind of, you're going through life blindly and boringly. But that's not the Bible. To, to follow God is to feast in the house of God, right? It's to live with such a fullness that overflows in you that, that everyone should be looking at your life and just saying, okay, like, I don't have that. <laughs> that looks really good. My family, I want whatever's going on in their family. I want whatever's happening in their life. We feast in the house of God. We're either fooled or we're feasting. There's no in-between. There's no neutral. There's no snacking on God. 
There's feasting in the house of the Lord. Are you with me on this one? He starts with four attributes of God. If you want to know God, this is where doctrine is so important. I have such a high priority for forming doctrine in us. You've got to know the doctrines of God. And there's a, there's a classic doctrine called the attributes of God. What has God revealed him to him, to, about himself through the word of God that we can know about him? Now let me walk through four of them that we see in here. First one. Steadfast love, verse five. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Steadfast. God has steadfast love. Very important Hebrew term, chesed love. I got a good chet there. Chesed love, okay? Chesed love. It's a godly love. It's a, it's a type of love that we see all through Scripture. It's oftentimes spoken about in marriages in a shadow of this love, okay? Ruth demonstrated steadfast love to Naomi when she said, I'm gonna leave my people in order to take care of you. David and Jonathan demonstrated a steadfast love for each other when they covenanted with each other as friends and brothers and said, whatever happens to you, we're in this. We got each other's back. And God, all through the Bible, demonstrates steadfast love for us. Most noticeably, we see God's steadfast love, his constant pursuing of us, his covenantal love for us in the person of Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross. Let me read to you a classic old Scottish Puritan who said this about God's steadfast love. Ralph Erskine. God has taken a marvelous, marvelous way to manifest his love. When he would show his power, he makes a world. When he would display his wisdom, he puts it in a frame and forms that discover its vastness. When God would manifest the grandeur and glory of his name, he makes a heaven and he, he puts angels and archangels and principalities and powers therein. And when he would manifest his love, what will he not do? God has taken a great and marvelous way of manifesting it in Christ his person, his blood, his death, his righteousness. You want to know God's power? Look at the world that he created. He spun into, into being by the breath of his, his mouth. You want to see his love? Look to Jesus on the cross. Where Jesus hangs on a cross, gives his life, pours his blood, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the father turns his face away from the son, in order that the son could take all of your judgment that was due you on his own shoulders. The epitome of God's love shown in the person of Jesus dying for us. His steadfast love. What should this do to you if you get the steadfast love? Well, to anyone who's ever, let me, a couple things. Number one, if you've ever struggled with being loved, look to the Father. In Jesus Christ, you're more loved than you could ever imagine. You are his beloved right? He died for you on the cross. But as you navigate a broken world and you see hardship and, 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 and you make mistakes and you change and, and you realize that your love is, is, is sometimes weak and you're trying to offer the kind of love God has, but you find yourself, you just can't get there. You know what you do? You, you realize, you go back to God and you say, oh, his steadfast love is good and he doesn't change. I change. He doesn't change. This summer when I was on sabbatical, I, I met this police officer Kind of a marked moment for me, actually. This will stick with me. And uh, guy, he, he was probably in his 50s or so in Marco Island. We were in Florida. And he, uh, he had this story. He had been a police officer in New Jersey for years. And he came to Jesus when he was about the same age as me, when he was about 18. And uh, as a young guy in his 20s, he was joining the police force. And he was uh, kind of foolish at the time. He had one foot in Christianity, one foot out. And he, uh, he took a motorcycle about 100 miles an hour, crashed it into a car, flew off the motorcycle, however far he went, and died. And he, he said, Rafe, 
And he said, here's what happened to me. I woke up in the presence of Jesus. He said, I've never been more loved in my whole life. He said, in that moment, standing in the presence of Jesus, I didn't need to be anybody. I didn't need to prove anything. I didn't need to accomplish anything. I I didn't need to, to do anything to get him to love me. He just loved me. And I knew I couldn't be more loved if I tried. It, it, was, a, it was a feasting on love. <laughs> How blind are we to it all? He cried out, I love you, Lord. And he woke up, went to a hospital. They said he wouldn't walk again. He walked out three weeks later to the hospital. <laughs> okay, steadfast love. That's biblical love. Don't, don't settle for any other love. That's what Jesus offers you. See, root yourself in the attributes of God. Faithfulness. Next one. Your faithfulness is to the clouds. Another attribute of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant. That word faithfulness refers to steadiness, reliability. It means he doesn't move. He doesn't change. In a, in a world of changingness, even we change. Everything changes. The world around us is constantly changing. Expectations are constantly changing. You know what doesn't change? You know what stays faithful? Your God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As you go through your seasons of life, as your family goes through their seasons of life, as your profession changes, as your city changes, everything changes. God does not change. The covenant he made with you the day you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he will keep with you until you meet him on your judgment day. He does not change. He cannot take that away. His promises are not yes and no. They're yes and amen. He makes a covenant with you, and he keeps it. What does that do to you if you get that? What's the world going to throw at you? Your God's faithful. They can't take that away from you. There's nothing that, that, God's faithfulness is what led all the Christians through all the persecution they faced. When you read the books, you read the voice of the martyrs. What, What are they relying on? His faithfulness. I hold on to the mountain. It doesn't move. Justice. He says, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Now let's start with that one, righteousness. He is righteous. That word means he's blameless, he's pure, he's upright. It means that all he does is true and right and good. We know that righteousness has a definition because it is rooted in the person of God. Righteousness is not some banner over God that God submits to. Righteousness is what God does. So we need a definition for what is right. We need a definition for what is true. We need a definition for what is good. You look at God. You understand his word. You understand who he is and how he works and what he's doing. And now you have your definition. That is the epitome of righteousness. Verse nine actually says this. I love this line. In your light do we see light. Go home and meditate on that one for a little bit. Here's what it means. It means we can't even understand what is light, what is good and true, unless we're sitting in your light. We, we, we don't have our own light. We don't have a light bulb we can turn on that's other than you, God. It's you. You reveal light to us. He's righteous. Everything he does is good. Everything he does is right. What does that mean? What, what should you be thinking when you think of this? Oh, it's good news, isn't it? Now, now, whatever you go through in this life, the God who's covenanted with you, the God who's got a plan for your life, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, you cling to the righteousness of God. He does no wrong. He knows what he's doing. You cling to that attribute. You see that? Christians need to 
re- recapture the old discipline of meditating on the word of God. And when you meditate, what you do, you go home, you take this, and you sit with it. You don't rush through it. You say, what are the implications of this, God? And you let God form it in you. Lastly, justice. Your judgments are like the great deep. It's the same word, actually, that's used in Genesis chapter one, where it says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Okay? It's this idea that God's judgments are, are so deep and wise and, and right, we can never fathom all the pieces that went into his decisions and his judgments. We are so finite, but God, God is infinite and sees a billion, billion, billion to the infinite degree, you know, ways this is all fitting together and prayers people are praying and our life and their life and how it all fits together and his judgments are like the deep. He makes no mistakes. His justice is always right even when we can't see it. Now, what does this do to a person? Well, 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 number one, if we want a sense of justice, which is a very important thing, we go to the word of God and we say, God, you, you know better than we do. I want to know, what do you have to say on this topic? But some of you today, I need, what you need to know is that you are carrying deep wounds in your life when you come into a room like this. And you're coming, you're hearing a pastor preach, you're coming, you're hearing the worship songs we're doing, and what you're really asking in this seat right now is, does the God that preacher is preaching about have anything to say to the way my dad treated me? That's what you're asking right now. Or you're, you're saying, does the, does the God that he's talking about have anything to do with that thing that happened to me that I barely shared with anybody? Where is the God of justice is what you're asking. And so I wanna pastor you right now and I wanna tell you that God is perfectly just. His, his, his wisdom is like the deep and he's so just that the Bible promises that every wrongdoing that's ever been done will be held perfectly accountable. Everyone. Nothing was ever done apart from his sight over it all. He knows you. He knows your story. He knows what happened. He sees the darkness. And he has this wonderful plan for you if you trust in Jesus Christ that he's gonna begin to heal what was broken and also bring full judgment about it, full justice. That's the God I'm talking about today. He is just for blessings. Now, if you root yourself in the doctrine of God, okay, this is what Christians do. We, look, I, I'm, I'm desperate to form a people of God that know the word so deeply that it all fits together. That's what I'm trying to do. When you wanna know about God and how he, how he behaves, how he acts, you start with the attributes, okay? You first get what's his nature like? What's this God we're talking about? There's a lot of gods being sold out there. What's this God like? And let's strip off the, the lies we've been believing about him. Now, if that's true, you say, now what, what, what can happen in a life that gets that? Well, well, look at a few of these. Verse seven, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. I think there's at least five blessings that come here. I'm gonna have time for two of them today. There, there's two of them. Number one, we take refuge in the shadow of your wings. The image there is of a, you know, a mother bird putting her wings around her baby birds, okay? And while it might sound childish, that's actually what Christians do. And if you're a follower of Christ for any length of time, you know what it's like to take refuge in God. Because when the storm comes, it's a good thing that you got a God who loves you and desires to put his wings around you and desires to comfort you and minister to you in your brokenness. That's what he does. And in your broken seasons, the, the, the father of mercies wraps you, his arm around you and says, come near, 
come near. You don't need to solve that right now. Let me just shelter you from the storm. Ooh, if ever you've been through a storm, that is good news. You need that. Because you know, storms come. They come. And when the big ones come, if you have no shelter and you're just trying to solve it on your own, you will fail, you will fall, and you will not know where to go. But the God of the Bible, if you know his attributes, if you know he's righteous, if he's just, and then you know he's merciful, and he's full of steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, right? That's the famous line Moses said. If you know all of this, then when you hit, the, when you hit that roadblock, you just go to God and he says, just sit here for a moment. Just bask in my goodness for a second. I got you. God of the Bible. He's, <laughs> that's the God of the Bible. But look at this. We feast on the abundance, and we drink from the river of your delights. Verse eight, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. That sounds good, doesn't it? It, it? The language is not we get a snack. The language is not we get a meal. The language is that we feast. Think about the last feast you went to, okay? Just, literally, just picture it in your mind, okay? You've been to a feast, you at some point in your life, everyone should have been to a feast. There's just more than enough food on the table. I heard Pastor Paco from Chicago. He was talking about a, a Mexican feast. And he, and he was just, he was talking about this verse, I think. And he was like, he goes, you get to a Mexican feast. He goes, and the chicken's there. And he goes, people are just eating and the grease is coming down your face. And no one cares because everyone's just so excited for the food that's there. That's the level of feasting that we're supposed to be having. Where, where it's just so good that you're, you're taking every promise of God and the grease is just dripping down your chin and onto your shirt. But you don't care because you just want more of God. He's so good. You just, just give me more. Give me more. What else? There's more at the table? I'll take more. What, what? This is my relationship with God. It's just feasting. Some of us don't know this. And, and I, I try to beat this drum every week for us. And I try to be excited up here from the pulpit because I am excited about Jesus. Because I think that if we get really what Christ is and what he's done for us, you walk away from a sermon like this and you say, you know what? I don't want to snack on him anymore. I want the grease to go down my chin. And I want, I want, I want a stain remover for my shirt. And it's so good, and there's more, and there's more of the table. That's the thing about a feast is you have your appetizer, but then you come back for a main dish, and then you come back for the dessert. And some of us in our Christian faith, what we are is we're still the, the appetizer phase. And we're like, it's okay, it's good, but it's just an appetizer. Like, it doesn't really minister to my, it doesn't make me come alive. Well, look, do you know how deep this thing is? Do you know, this is a lifetime of walking with God and living in the spirit and watching him do the miraculous around you living by the word of God, seeing him change people's life around you. And it's like more and more, third appetizers, fourth appetizers, then the first main dish. Some of us are just at the first appetizer and we're, we think we're full already. Oh, get ready. There, there's more dishes here. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this, said, you know, it's kind of like, like a little kid whose dad just brought a great big mansion. And, and, and the dad brings the kid to the mansion and he says, go run inside and explore. And the kid runs in the lobby and he looks at the staircases and he sees the doors and he runs upstairs. He opens the first door and his eyes are big. And you know, then he runs down the hall and he opens another door and his eyes are big. And with every door he keeps opening up, he goes, there's another room. There's another room. And the kid just doesn't get tired of just looking at more. There's, an there's another room over. There's another wing of the house over here. We need that childlike faith. There's another room. There's another wing of the house that we haven't even gotten to yet. You know, it doesn't matter how long you've been walking in this Christian faith, there's whole new wings to explore of God. 
He's got more for you. We need to learn how to feast on the goodness of God again. The psalm closes with this wonderful prayer. It says this, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. I started by saying that every person is either fooled by sin or feasting in the house of God. We're either fooled by sin or feasting in the house of God. And I want to ask you, what are you today? Just because you're a follower of Christ does not mean that you don't have areas in your life where you're being fooled by sin. There's areas to work on. Where, where is sin getting a hold of you and robbing you of feasting on God? Remember, we've talked about that. First thing it does is it numbs you to God and numbs you to the goodness of God. Where are you backsliding? If you're in this room and, and you've been a follower of Christ and you find yourself, you're backsliding today. You've come in here and you, know, you, just, you, know, you had a season where you, were, where you were what I'm describing. But the last couple of years is, you know, rhythms settle in, life settles in. What that is, is you're being fooled, okay? And I, I don't want you to leave here fooled. What, what the devil does is he, he loves if he can just numb us to the enthusiasm and the goodness of God. And I wanna speak to you. If you're backsliding and you're in this room today, do not leave backsliding. Do not leave settling for the first appetizer when you have a whole feast before you. Determine in your hearts that you're gonna take this feast that we're about to have together, this, this, this taking of the Lord's Supper together. And you're, you're not gonna leave just saying, I'm still backsliding. You're gonna do the work of prayer in your seats today and you're gonna say, God, renew me. Give me something more today. I wanna walk out of here walking with the Spirit and I wanna walk out of here more enthusiastic about what God's doing than I've ever been in my life before. And if you're in here today and you have never received the forgiveness and the love of Jesus Christ, I wanna, I wanna give a warning to you from this passage. Look how verse 11 and 12 end. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. That, that's hearkening back to the beginning, isn't it? Where, where it's this, this, this uh, foolishness, this arrogance that comes over you where you, speak to, you begin to speak bold things about yourself. Why? Because there's no fear of God. Let not arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. There's a, there's a very real judgment for our life that we stand before a holy God. And, and this is hinting at that. There is a judgment and a resurrection that takes place and God will separate the wheat from the chaff, those who have decided to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin and those who have not decided to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And if you're in this room and you're still toying with making the decision, if you're just checking it out, I, I, I implore you, look at what God is offering you. The other option is death. It's the foolishness of sin that ends in death, and you know it. I know you know it. I know it. I've lived it before accepting Jesus. And it ends in the final death, which is separation from God, and you don't want to find it out then. Learn your lesson while today is still today. Believe in Jesus Christ. Choose Christ. Feast on Christ. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you so much for the Psalms and this, uh, this precious series we've had this summer. I'm going through so many Psalms. Lord, I pray, Lord, that this would be more than a sermon series. I pray, God, that you'd be doing a work right now in this room, convicting hearts. For those that are backsliding, I pray today, Lord, that you would renew them in the name of Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would breathe fresh life into them. Fresh wind, fresh fire. Speak into their souls, God. Holy Spirit, just, I, I just see right now this, 
this heart that was just barely beating. And then it's just like, just starts thumping really loud and hard. I pray that right now in this room, Jesus, that you would take barely beating hearts and make them thump so loud that the neighbors hear it. God, I pray for those who've never accepted Jesus Christ that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be new people who have never taken this Lord's Supper as believers in Jesus, that they would take it as a new follower of Christ. And God, I pray that you build this church faithfully, strongly on your word of God. In Jesus' holy name, amen.